welcome to Dead Men's Donuts and the Society of Survivors, the podcast. My name is Grace Baudino, and this is episode eight. Uh, Today, the world is in chaos. Once again, still, again, forever, I don't know. Um, We have the global pandemic going on. And we've got racial tensions and riots in the street, but here we are. This is the Morbidly Uplifting Podcast. Uh, So for those of you who don't know, I am a deputy medical examiner or a medical legal death investigator, and I spend all my time at work looking into stories about why people are dead and hearing about why why things ended badly. And so in order to counterbalance my job and the stories that I hear at work, I have this podcast because what I do is I listen to stories about why people are alive and I broadcast them to you. That's right, this is all about survival and the triumph of the human spirit over insurmountable odds. Kind of like the global pandemic, or the racial tensions, or the riots in the streets. Um, So tonight's story is, I don't know, it feels a bit risky because it's a story about a racially motivated attack. And so to that end, I suppose it's kind of apropos and timely, but this racially motivated attack ultimately was about miscommunication. And somebody being targeted for something that they didn't do or something that they didn't think. And I think we can all identify with being misunderstood and miscommunication and how that can go awry so quickly. And Cadman's story is... It's hard to listen to, but it's a good one because much like all of the other stories that I've covered in this podcast so far, ultimately there's the survival of the event itself, but then there is the aftermath. You know, there's everything that came after and learning how to absorb the reality of what happened to you and what that makes you do and how that makes you feel and what kind of person that it makes you, who you decide to be as a result of it. And I feel as though that's a very important aspect of Cadman's story because he recognizes, he recognizes the things that this, that this attack did to him. And, you know, the fact is survival's hard and Overcoming the trauma is hard, and sometimes listening to the story is hard, and sometimes it ends well, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it ends with a nice, tidy bow and everybody singing kumbaya and hugging each other, and sometimes it doesn't. And I believe in leaving space for the story to not be finished, and I believe in allowing people to tell their experience in all of its reality 
And the reality of Cadman's story is strange and it's rough, but it's worth listening to if for no other reason than simply because maybe you can identify with a notion of miscommunication being the cause of a lot of conflict. And really quick, I want to, <laughs> speaking of miscommunication, um, I want to let you know that this is another interview that was done with questionable microphones. Uh, I had a microphone, but it wasn't, it wasn't great, so it's a little quiet. Uh, once again, you're going to want to turn up your volume so you can hear this, but we've got one more interview after this, and then it's onward and upward to better sound quality. So, without further ado, here is Cadman's story. Portland, Oregon, where this happened. I'm 35 years old, and this is my survival story. Okay. So tell me your survival story. So it was late summer in, I think, 2006, maybe 2007. Which means you were how old? I was 22, 23 years old. Okay. And, um... I worked at the time for a local arcade mm -hmm. where I worked at the front desk. I was the assistant manager. Uh, so we would like sell tickets and make change for nickels and people would spend their nickels on arcade games and come back and exchange those tickets for prizes like uh, Tootsie Rolls and keychains and light up pirate ships and stuff. <laughs> Finger traps and yeah, <laughs> spinning yeah. tops. <laughs> all, all sorts of cheap plastic crap. This, this day was already a very memorable day because it was by far the busiest work day we had ever had. And we were a, per we were a person short. Uh, so if anybody has ever worked retail hell, this is one of those stories. So was it like a, a holiday or something like that? Unless so many people were there? It was just... It was just a perfect storm. Uh, it was like summer break, so lots of kids were in there. And then I think two or three different summer camps scheduled events with us at once. Oh, dear God. And then <coughs> on top of that, we just had birthday after birthday after birthday, and it, it, we were just absurdly busy. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we had like a popular movie. We were also a second-run theater, so we had like a popular movie coming through as well. And for several straight hours, our lobby was a, a sea of children. 
Like there was not a path to walk through. You had to gently escort them to either side so you could take single steps. <laughs> um, our like our average busy day was like six or seven thousand dollars at the end of the day, which is a lot of transactions for like. Considering they're all nickels. Yeah, you <laughs> like five six dollars a transaction most of the time, and this day was like twelve thirteen thousand dollars. I had never seen anything that big. And I was working a double. <laughs> and I was the only manager on staff for the first half of it. So it, it was it was just a mess. And this is like in Portland City proper. Yeah. Not like the outlying suburbs or anything. No, this is walking distance from downtown. Okay. What else was going on in your life at this time? Um, like were you in school or no, living at uh, home? My my girlfriend at the time was in school, and I was working to support us, mm -hmm. uh, and that was kind of it. I worked. I played games with my friends, and I, you know, I was 22. I, was I 22. had a job. I thought my life was figured out. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a moment to think about that, shall I know, we? right? <laughs> oh, it's great. Yeah, I was the assistant manager, so I knew I was going places. <laughs> you you work in you work in retail long enough and you start to recognize customers by demographics. There's there's the problem parents, there's mm. the where like counter like counter to that, there's the who let these children in here, where are their parents, there's the drunk frat boys, there's the weird Russian mob that always are super terrifying but totally fine in the establishment so you just like smile at them in their matching tracksuits and <laughs> and tell everybody to let them have the ski ball lanes just let them have it yeah i mean you know like they come up and they tell you that that a game is broken and you go fix it and it's fine um and one of the groups that we had in our arcade was the the like first generation Asian kids. Mm. Um, they would come in in like usually groups of five or six, sometimes and boys mostly, uh, sometimes with a couple of girlfriends. And how old? Oh, late teens, early twenties. Okay. So your like, age. Yeah, yeah, like my age or a little younger. Yeah. And they would always be very good at a small subset of the redemption games, the ones that gave out tickets, mm -hmm. and just absolutely clean house at the ticket counter. Like, one of the very small groups of people that the establishment probably lost money on. Because huh. those games are profit machines, unless you can win them every single time. But I, like, I didn't care. Like, I wasn't getting paid on commission. They came in, they won their games. They were sometimes a little louder than some of the other customers, but whatever and on this day we had a group of those guys come in mm -hmm. and they were they were a little more like thuggy than the average group really loud did they like set off alarms in your head like your your assistant manager retail alarm kind of go this, uh, this is gonna be a problem like a little bit but my senses were so dead <laughs> after that like after seven hours of that day with five hours left to go that I just went 
these guys might complain the rules are the rules and as long as they don't break them it's no big deal and I've never had like such a problem that it became a serious problem with this group of people like had way more problems with drunk frat guys yeah so whatever and if they like if they complain we'll ask them to leave and um this group had a particular game that they were very very good at and they cleaned it out of tickets what was it uh it's like a train themed roulette wheel where you press a button and then if you press it at just the right time it'll stop on the thing that gives you a bunch of tickets and um that particular game had a special key that was used to open it and that morning our technician that comes in and fixes all the games left with that key so we couldn't get into it um so when they ran that game out of tickets our policy is if we can't fix a game we'll give you the benefit of the doubt generally and um put an out of order sign on it and that is that so they ran this game out of tickets and they came up and actually they didn't even come up to the counter they like flagged down one of my very beleaguered attendants whose job was to like make sure that stuff was okay on the floor which of course it wasn't because it was a literal sea of children and they were very very impolite they were cursing at him they were yelling they were like making threats in front of kids because they didn't get their 300 tickets from this game uh, which is about enough for a laser pointer Mm -hmm. or 75 Tootsie Rolls. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just to put it in perspective. Yeah. So they were cursing, acting, they, they, they were giving us grounds to kick them out right there. Don't yell fuck you in front of six year olds <laughs> you wouldn't think you'd have to tell that to people right um and they were just being an absolute jerk to this guy that i work with and want to support mm-hmm. uh and so when they complained about the game i said you know what i'm allowed to play the you're an asshole card i'm gonna do it for the morale of my coworker. and i said sorry game's broken we can't get into it I'll have somebody get down there and put an out-of-order sign on it. You got all the tickets that you're going to get out of that thing. And I and I asked one of my coworkers to go put an out-of-order sign on it. And I went about my day. Uh-huh. And like half an hour later, this other group, com- this other person comes up. It's like, a, well, I remember this all very vividly now. It was a white guy and his girlfriend. And they were like a little older. And they said, hey... We tried to play this game. It didn't give us our tickets. It made the noise that says we win. What's up? Um, and so I asked them about it. And like the policy with this particular game was to have them identify the sound that it makes when it went, when they win. Uh-huh. Most people, when they're lying about it, they just go, it said, yeah, you won, or you get ticked. But it was like a very specific train noise with a, with a specific phrase that if you win, that is what plays. And they, they said that. They, they identified that they won the game correctly. And I was like, okay, 
Now it's on us. We know that the game is out of tickets. I guess my coworker didn't get the out of order sign on there. Turns out he was playing pinball on the clock. Your coworker that was supposed to put the uh, my coworker that was supposed to put the out of order sign on there. So, um, and I say, all right, these guys are being perfectly polite. It's on us. It sets like a little bit of a funny precedent, I guess, to give them their tickets. And this is where I had that like uh oh feeling, but I rationalized it away because they were being nice people, and I want to encourage nice people to engage with us honestly. And so I gave them the tickets mm -hmm. and they went back into the arcade and like not two minutes later, that whole group of Asian kids that had been a huge problem earlier walked out through the lobby, just giving me the most hateful stares. Hmm. And I was like, oh, I knew there was something funny about that. I bet, I bet they talked to them and like, they're mad that I gave someone else tickets. Well, they were being assholes, whatever. And they waited outside for like three, four hours. And I was literally too busy to go tell them off. Uh, so I go about my day. So did you know they were waiting out there? Yeah, no, they were like standing outside the front door and I saw them for hours just kind of staring into the building. And I was like, gonna do my job. I don't have time to take a break for me let alone go talk to you. And I was tired and it was retail hell. And I finished up my count for the day and shut everything down. So this is midnight now. And they, they stood out there from they stood out there p.m. to midnight? From, they stood out there from like 7 p.m. to 10 or so, maybe 10.30. Then I just kind of like, and then they left and I kind of forgot about them. I figured they stood outside long enough to cool off and get over it and that was that so I get out at like 12 15 you know after I've shut down turned on the alarms and done all the paperwork and I give my I give my other manager who came in for the last like third of the day the the deposit to take to the bank and I'm waiting for my girlfriend to pick me up and we live not far down the street mm -hmm. but it's usually my job to take the deposit, so she picks me up. We go to the bank to go through the drive-through. It's the it's the work routine. There's a traffic light four blocks from where I work, and when she pulls up to the traffic light, she calls me, and I I answer my cell phone, and she's like, "Hey, I'm on my way. I'll be right there," and I said, "Great. I'll see you soon." And as I'm saying this, I'm like leaning up against the, the, the parking sign. And as I'm saying the words, great, I'll see you in a minute, the guys from before start coming around the corner and like walking around behind me. So you saw them, they were coming towards you? Yeah. And looping like, behind you? Yeah. And like, this was right on the corner. So like, they were within our, like nearly within arm's reach when they entered my field of vision. And I'm like, this is going to be annoying. I'm going to get into a fist fight. I'm not wearing good shoes for this. Ugh, well, I'll wrestle my way out and get to the car and we'll drive off and it'll be fine. And as I'm thinking that to myself and saying, I'll see you in a minute, I see they've got steel pipes in their hands. Oh, fuck. 
as I'm as I'm like closing my flip phone. And I realize that my, my my night's about to get a bit worse than I had just thought. And I kinda like my shoulders slump and I'm like, fuck I'm tired. And I hear a loud, like whistling sound and a clang as the guy the, the guy that I have identified as the meanest guy in this group was the one most behind me, took a swing like probably both arms at my temple. And I just happened to slump down because I realized that they're armed and I'm pissed about it. And it misses. Like loud reverberating steel on steel clang he hit the right above my head. I like probably, probably missed me by my hair. <sighs> and you're bald. <laughs> I had hair at the time. Okay. <laughs> It, I had a lot of hair. It was nice. <laughs> and let me tell you, adrenaline was one hell of a drug. The next, like, the events that I am go that I am going to describe here were so blindingly fast that it's amazing that I can remember so much of it. After that swing, I had a lot of mental math to do. Yeah. My girlfriend is in the car a few blocks away with another friend of ours. These are very obviously aggressive men out to hurt me. They cannot get involved. I need to get away from this situation quickly. There's no chance that I'm going to end this fight without... By the way, I've been practicing martial arts since I was five. Okay. <laughs> this is how I survived. I, I, I realized really quickly that if I'm going to end this fight in a way that is safe for me in the future and for them, because these guys came back with steel pipes. They obviously have violent intent. Yeah. If they don't like how the fight went and they're still mad at me, they're going to come back with better weapons. So I realized that the only way out of this is for them to get out of this fight unscathed, thinking that they have sent a message, because the other option is... My girlfriend gets here, and suddenly she's involved. Mm -hmm. So, once the first pipe missed me, this was the math I did, and I bull rushed the smallest guy in front of me, because when you've got a circle around you, you have to break it. Because once you've got one of them in between you and the rest of them, you're, you're covered. You can fight them one at a time. But when, you have to, when you're dealing with all of those hits at once, like you just can't stop it from one of them hitting you in the knee, one of them hitting you in the temple. And was it, was it feasible for you, like one, one dude against five dudes who, did they all have metal pipes? They, all, just... they were all armed, but they were not trained. Okay. And let me tell you how much of a difference that makes. I had, was it I feasible had the time. for you to put five dudes with metal pipes in the hospital? If they don't know how to protect their eyes, yeah, absolutely. Oh. <laughs> so, what I did... Fuck uh, your eyes, dude. There was the guy in front of me who I, who I identified as the scared one. Because, like, people, people enter into this mentality because they are following somebody who is making them think they don't have to be afraid. Most people don't want to hurt other people. But scared people can be convinced to do stupid things by hateful people. The hateful guy was the one behind me who took the swing. Yeah. The other four were the scared guys who followed him. And I picked up the smallest one by the neck and I carried him to the brick wall of the building and I slammed him into a window. 
and he swung his pipe at me and I blocked it with my hand. And had my training been a little tighter, I probably could have disarmed him. But instead, I just took a hit to the hand and I've got like a frowny face scar. Oh yeah, look at that. <laughs> I draw eyes on it once in a while. <laughs> um, it's all like, oh, a little hand. Do you remember that time? It's like, yeah. yeah, I do. Yeah, so, so I had it by the neck. And, you know, like, if you... If you hold your hand kind of like you're holding a holding a sandwich, yeah, and you really just think about how strong your thumb is and how a person's skull is shaped, like that thumb goes right into the eye socket, mm. and that's it for somebody. You've got a great handle on them; their eye is gone. You can put their temple into your knee as many times as it takes for them to go down, and it's fast, and they're done. Like, if you can't see, you can't fight. Uh, so I figure, knees, eyes, throats. I'll take a weapon, get these guys down. And I see the look in this kid's face. Like, as I'm holding him up by the neck, like, fucking 200-something pound guy in front of him, ready to take his eye out. And he does not look angry. He does not look hateful. He looks so scared. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm about to take a a teenage boy's eye out. I can't do this. I don't want this to be a part of my story. Um, so I throw him on the ground and I try to run through the next three guys. Because uh, I figure I'm a good sprinter. They're already surprised I didn't go down on the first sling. If I can get away from them enough that I can get into the car, we can get away from them. But one of them catches me by the shirt and we go into a tangle. So it's like old school wrestling. I tie up with him, I grab his arms, I pull him in close to me and I keep my eyes on the ground and I'm watching for the other guy's feet and their shadows so I can see where they are as I'm moving because I can't see out sideways. Um, and I keep us moving in circles so they can't land a good hit on me because I'm trying to shake him off enough that I can throw him on the ground and use him as we're spinning to keep his friends from swinging at me. Right. And I'm taking hit after hit after hit wow. on my back and on my shoulders, okay. which is fine. Those are great big muscles and that's like there's a lot of armor there. If they were if they were trained, they would have gone for my knees and I would have gone down. So I was lucky. I was really lucky. As we're as we're moving and I'm pretty sure it was the same guy that swung in my head the first time, now that I think about it. Like, there are moments in that, in that spin where I have to plant my feet to get more momentum on him, because he's not exactly a willing dance partner. And as I plant my feet, I hear this loud crack and a kind of ringing noise, and I'm realizing that that's the sound of a steel pipe bouncing right off the top of my head. Somebody got like a straight down swing onto the crown of my head. And I've got a little dent in it. Oh, yeah, you do. Oh, wow. It's like it's like a little dimple. Yeah. And from the edges of my vision, everything starts to go black, creeping in down to a little single pinpoint. And I remind myself that my girlfriend is in the car on her way here and the light has probably turned green by this point. 
and that this is not where I go down. This is not how this story ends for me. Do you think they would have killed you? I don't think they would have shown much restraint. I don't think they would have stopped hitting me after I went down. Like, the human body is very resilient. People have survived, like, maulings from grizzly bears. I don't think they would have been so thorough as to be sure. But I don't... I don't know. I don't know if they would have or not. I don't think they would... I don't think that the guy in charge would have cared very much either way. But that's not what happened. And this I can only attribute to force of will. I said no. No, no, no. And I like physically, as, as much as physically makes sense for this situation, I physically pushed my scope of vision back open, got my peripheral vision back, lost that tunnel vision, and realized I cannot take another one of those hits. I barely took one. I have to get out of this now. And then with, again, adrenaline is a hell of a drug. Yeah. Even more effort than I already had. Oh, I was trying to protect my shirt because it was one of my favorite shirts. <laughs> I pulled this guy off of me, which ripped up my shirt, which was already ruined. It was covered in blood. Yours? Oh, yeah. They were all fine. You're, you're bleeding profusely from the yeah, head, head. head like and my hand. Like yeah. I've gotten it on myself. Rips my shirt. I managed to. I don't remember what throw I used, but I managed to get this guy off of the ground and rolling sideways towards his friends. And I do a quick count, and I realize that four of them are standing. One of them is on the ground, in between me and all four of them, and there's nothing between me and where I know my girlfriend's car is coming from. So I take three hops backwards, like left, right, left, realize that their, their focus is split. Some of them want to come after me. Some of them want to pick up their friend. They haven't made a decision yet. I've got like 15, 20 feet in between us and them real fast. And I turn and sprint. And I, listening, I hear some of them say, He's getting away, go get the car. And I know that, well, I surmise anyway, that with where they came from, their car is up the, up the side street, whereas I'm running down the main street. And so they're not gonna see where I am for a few seconds. They're hoping to catch up with me as I'm running. Mm -hmm. They don't know that I have a car coming. So I look over my shoulder, and when I can't see them down the road, I run out into the bike lane on the major street and just look ahead for headlights and I'm like mostly sure that the next car I see is going to be my girlfriend's I can't be certain but I also know that the most important thing for me to do right now is to get into a car and get away so I run out in the I run out in the bike lane start waving my hands above my head as a car is coming it is my girlfriend's car she has driven in the time it took all of this to happen. She has driven two blocks and has no idea about any of it. So I run up and she's like slowing down cautiously. She's confused as hell. Well, yeah, because how, I mean, right. all of this happened in the space of, of I'll, I'll see, see you, you in a minute. <laughs> and light turns green. Yeah. Pound on the hood, 
get to the back seat, throw it open, dive in, pull it shut behind me, lie down on the back seat, and yell, drive, 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 fucking drive. And she's freaked out, obviously. I was like, what happened? Fucking drive. And we get away. Let's drive around, let the adrenaline cool down on me for a minute. I explain what happened. I call the not emergency police line because they respond way faster than 911. <laughs> uh, they get paramedics out. We arrange to meet them in a parking lot, which is well lit because I'm worried that they're like going to be patrolling the area and trying to catch me. I'm freaked out, especially now that I have my girlfriend with me and like mm -hmm. our friend and like, what the fuck are they going to do? But we like park and kind of hide in the car until the cops and the fire, the paramedics show up in a, in a fire truck. And when the cops are there, I feel safe. And I get checked out and I give them a report about what happened. And I go to the emergency room and I spend like four or five hours in the emergency room. The first phone call I made actually once we were waiting for the paramedics to arrive was to my parents. And I said, this happened where which emergency room is my insurance covering <laughs> i don't want this to cost you guys a pile of money if i don't have to yeah. it's like at that point i've got nothing to do but try and make rational decisions so <laughs> <laughs> and i get some absolutely god-awful medical care like i get i get some stitches and two weeks later the doctor that looks at them is like well it's red and puffy but i don't want to take those stitches out i don't think they could possibly be infected also tried to tell me I was left-handed. Like, wait, what? what? Yeah, you know, terrible doctor, absolutely terrible doctor. But uh, that's what the workman, workman's comp from my job covered. Oh, this became a workman's comp thing. Yeah, yeah. I I had to push for it, but I was like, I got attacked by people who were mad at me for doing my job by our policies, right outside of our work, right after my shift you're paying for my like you're paying to get these stitches out guys so was your hand infected it was it was and after the doctor didn't take it out my girlfriend looked at it and was like that shit's infected you need to get those out and so we pulled the stitches and like squeezed the pus out ourselves oh jesus yeah because it wasn't about to go another two weeks like that how was your head did well, you have a concussion or uh, i had did, did you I get had stitches a, to your scalp did there you the, there the wasn't much done to be there wasn't much to be done to the scalp. It was like a very small wound and like the bleeding had mostly stopped by the time I got to the ER. There was nothing to be done about it. So your work fought you on No my my manager my the, the the district managers wanted to, but my store manager was like, No, guys, no. I would have done the same thing in his situation. But I didn't get any paid time off. Like I didn't miss a day of work filling bags of coins in my fucking ripped up hand with infected stitches in it because this is america <laughs> what do you feel were like the long-term effects of this well was this attack uh i was really freaked out and i didn't realize how freaked out i was until i thought about how strange it was that i started like carrying a kitchen knife taped to my arm at all times really yeah 
Well, I lived really close to where I worked at the time, and it's a neighborhood haunt that these guys probably went to before and would plan on going to again. Uh, and I just didn't want to be like jumped on the street without a weapon. I don't really like carrying around a weapon. Like I understand carrying around a knife, like to have a tool, but that wasn't why I had it. And I stopped leaving my house, like at all. I didn't like going to the store. I didn't like going to the bar. I don't like going anywhere. I stayed in a lot. I gained about a hundred pounds. Wow. Yeah. And I think I think part of that was like a subconscious desire to protect my body because it had been put at such risk. And it wasn't until like two, three years later when I realized, oh my God, I'm like super overweight. I should do something about that, that I started actively picking up some of my old martial practices again and getting the weight off that I really started to process how fucked up this thing that happened was because like I was just doing my job and these guys oh the thing that they kept yelling at me all throughout the encounter was don't fuck with Asians as if I had somehow been racist because these people that were being assholes to my employees uh, weren't going to get 75 Tootsie Rolls for being assholes to my employees. Uh, and that was enough for me, a white guy, to deserve to die. And it's weird. Like, it's super weird as part of a privileged minority to have a first-hand experience of what, like, a racially motivated hate crime is like. Mm. But... You know, when a bunch of people are crowding around you saying, don't fuck with my race, you person of other race, like, I think that's what it is. And um, it's been really hard for me to filter that out of my cognitive bias when I meet new people. Like, I get, I still get really antsy when I see young Asian kids in basketball jerseys. And that's a lot of people. And they're certainly not all going to try and kill me. And I can, like, own that and remind myself to be comfortable. But I still have to remind myself to be comfortable. It's no longer, hey there, fellow human. Yeah. I have, to, I, like, I have a mental check that will not go away that says, is this person going to threaten my life? And that's really unfortunate. So there's the uh, there's the aspect of surviving the attack itself, mm -hmm. and then there's surviving the psychological aftermath as well. Yeah, and like I think I think everybody has a demon shaped more or less like this one somewhere in their past. You know, whether it's whether it's like a bad car accident that just makes you really jumpy on the road or a scary situation that you had with your family or something like this where like another person decides to try and take your life into their hands without your permission we're all just like piles of trauma cobbled together <coughs> around 
coping habits or coping mechanisms and the good habits we've managed to develop. And I, um, I, I carried it with me really hard and really heavy for a long time. And it wasn't until the first time I went to Burning Man and I went to the temple and I realized that I had something that I really needed to let go of that I looked back and decided to make it a part of my past instead of a part of my present being. And how do you think you've done that? I mean, I, I like, I drew the best recreation that I could from memory, like of the street corner where uh -huh. it happened on the temple wall with like blood stain beneath the, the parking sign where I almost got hit and went down. And it was, it was a reminder to myself that I didn't die there. It wasn't the end of my story. Like, I got out of it with... A frowny face on your yeah, hand. Yeah, like four or five stitches on my hand and a little dent in my skull and no serious damage. And hopefully, after realizing how scary that situation was for them, one or two of those guys went maybe beating up strangers isn't the thing that I want to be doing with my life. If you could say anything to them now, what do you think it would be? What the fuck, man? <laughs> Here's a fucking laser pointer. <laughs> if I offered you two, would you want to get hit in the head with a pipe? Is it worth it? That guy's an ass. Don't hang out with him. <laughs> be better. This is not how any of us get anywhere in this world. If you were talking to somebody that had the same thing happen to them, that's not as, it's not as distant for them, like it just happened to them an hour ago or last night or last week, what would you say to them? Whatever it was that got you through that, don't let go of it. Because that part of you is the part that wants to live. And yeah, it's screaming and freaked out right now, but it's really only the fact that we can't exist as beings who are screaming and freaked out all the time that we don't. <laughs> so... <laughs> We're all screaming and freaked out all the time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm like, screaming and freaked out at this very moment. Like, we, we come into this world screaming and freaked out, and eventually it stops getting us anywhere, so we try new things. But that doesn't stop us from being things that just want to scream and freaked out until it's all solved. Like, none of us make it out of this world alive. Except for astronauts, technically. <laughs> <laughs> but... And they have to come back first. They do. They do have to come back. <laughs> for now. <laughs> but that thing that makes you... that, that there, there was like, there was a distinct moment in that where I felt like I had to make, had to make a choice to survive. Um, and it, it really 
hit home, as it were, when I got cracked on the top of the head and there was only a pinpoint of light in the front of my field of vision and everything else was kind of a hollow echo of what it had been an infinite amount of time ago before I said, no, that light doesn't go out. It comes back. It gets bigger. I get out of this. And, you know, if anybody else has survived, plenty of people have survived things like this. If anybody listening has survived something like this recently and wants to find a path to calm that terrified, screaming voice inside of them that says, I just want to live. Why do I have to do this? If you're not practicing martial arts, like, go find a school. I, I truly believe that the world would be a better place if everybody learned how to use their own hands and, their, and to use their own bodies to defend themselves. Because the thing, the thing that really struck me, God, the puns, <laughs> about that fight was that I learned really early in my practicing just how ugly a fight could get. Like, I, I was seven when I started learning efficient ways to take out someone's eye because mm. the guy teaching me was ex-Navy and he learned nothing but pragmatic martial arts and he thought it was the coolest shit and he wanted to show me and I thought it was amazing. So I, I really like... I drilled it into my body how, how, to, how to deal with these things. And that's what gave me the room to think about how to do all the math. There's five guys. Where do I need to hit them to go make, make them down? How much time do I have before they get in a, in a lucky hit? How much time do I have before my girlfriend gets here? What's going to happen if she sees this? Is she going to get out of the car? Or is she going to drive away? If she drives away, what's my escape route? That was my thought process. And I got to think about all of the possibilities that led to my best chance for surviving not only that fight but to get away from all the future fights that would come if I didn't win that one in a way that they felt like it was over and I was able to think about all that because my body just kicked into gear and I didn't have to think about where to put my feet or where to put my hands because it knew and having that inside you makes you so much more comfortable with what can happen outside of you. And if you have a good teacher, learning all the ways that a person can hurt another person make you way less interested in doing it because you, you know what it's like to get thrown to the ground and how much it sucks. You know what it's like to get put in a wrist lock or to get choked out. And you know that you don't know anything about the person that you're going to start a fight with. You don't know if they've trained for 10 years. You don't know if they have a knife. You don't know if they have a friend around the corner. And it just makes you not want to start that fight. You get mad about something. You look somebody up and down. You say, is this worth one of us getting maimed over? Is this worth one of us get dying? 75 Tootsie Rolls. 
And the answer is usually that it's not. And when it is, you can live a peaceful life within yourself knowing that it's not your choice to put you in that situation and that you've lived a life to avoid this situation. And if somebody else wants to put themselves in a place where it's their life or yours, that sucks, but it's on them. Swallow all those snowflakes in the gasoline cloud. Give me up, give me out, cause I'm cold, let me shout. Let me swallow all those snowflakes in the gasoline cloud. And there you have it. <laughs> Cadman's story. What I think is interesting about that story, or what I think is distressing or poignant about that story, rather, is the fact that it, it's he's right in that it was a perfect storm. Um, and it's a shame how people assumed that he was being racist and how that resulted in a racially motivated attack or these people attacking, attacking Cadman because they thought something about him that wasn't true. And they thought something about him that was terrible. And that just seems to be such the theme these days is people believing terrible things about each other and then responding as though those things that they believe are true. And sometimes they're just not. It's, it's a strange world we're living in right now, but I hope that whatever you're facing, whatever you have survived, that these stories give you some strength and some hope that you can not only survive these deals, you can survive the aftermath, you can get through the post-traumatic everything that occurs, and you can thrive still. You can quite literally and figuratively shed the weight of what has happened to you and what's been done to you and come out the other side and be better for it. Anyway, um, this week it is Cool Art Corner and I found this artist on Instagram where I find all my artists. And once again, this person does not know that I'm doing this, but I'm gonna anyway. Uh, this week's Cool Art Corner is an artist named Lee. He goes, he, she, he, they, they, she, person, unknown, gender, or if they are non-binary, don't know. Lee K. Um, and it's Lee Killust, L-E-E, -E, and K-I-L-L-U-S-T. And... They are exclusively um, portraits, they're faces, but they are not the sort of face, they're not Rembrandts, if you will, they're not, they're, they're interpretations of faces with these approximations of features, but the eyes are always very pronounced and very haunting. And there's a lot of pencil work and some really, really thick, chunky oil paints and... They're just fabulous, and they 
they affect you when you see them. And art is supposed to affect you, and they sure do. It's the kind of art that's so cool and so... so strange that I love them, but I'm not sure I would want one hanging on my wall because I might be a little disturbed. I, I highly encourage you to take a look. Uh, this is a Korean artist. And again, I don't know male, female, or what, because the pictures are all pictures of the paintings and all you ever see is a hand. <laughs> They're great. So check out Lee Killust or Lee K from South Korea on Instagram. That's at L-E-E-K-I-L-L-U-S-T. Um, as always, if you have a survival story to tell me, you can reach me at deadmensdonuts at gmail.com. Or if you just want to say hi, um, say I'm doing great, say I'm doing terrible, really don't care. It's not exactly paying my bills. Um, but I would like to hear from you listening audience. So feel free to email. I can also be reached on Facebook at Dead Men's Donuts Society of Survivors or on Instagram at Dead Men's Donuts. Or if you don't want stories of survival and you want tales of the crazy batshit, um, amazing, tragic, humorous, terrible, the whole spectrum stories from working as a medical examiner, deputy medical examiner, medical legal death investigator, stories about mortality. Those can be found on my blog at www.deadmensdonuts.com. And if you like the podcast, I highly encourage you to please, please, please comment, share, like, uh, write a review, give me some stars, just whatever. Um, obviously, it's always kind of hard to get some traction on podcasting because there are thousands out there. So if you're listening, let everybody know. Um, as always, my intro and outro music was done by Vi the Fiddler, who can be found at vithefiddler.com. That's V-I the Fiddler. Also, the Dead Men's Donuts logo was done by Tasha Zuniga at Art of Obscura, and they can be found on Instagram at Art of Obscura. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll be back next week for our next survival story. In the meantime, <laughs> do your best, and remember to laugh at death. God knows he's laughing at you. This is Grace Baudino signing off.